in the United States right now, a sixth of young people are prepared to admit to a pollster, which means the number is probably a lot higher, that they would rather have military leadership in the U.S. than a democracy. And the only reason they would say that is because they think they don't live in a democracy. They think the system is rigged against them. And if we don't fix that, if we don't identify that as the problem, I am just not willing to stand up with everyone else and say Trump is the problem. Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of Eurasia Group, is perhaps the world's leading global political risk consultant and a U.S. foreign policy expert. Bremmer grew up in a poor neighborhood just outside Boston, Massachusetts, and went on to earn a doctorate from Stanford University, becoming the youngest ever national fellow at the Hoover Institution and the creator of Wall Street's first ever global political risk index. His books include Every Nation for Itself, The End of the Free Market, Superpower, and his latest, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. I'm Tom Edwards, and I'm delighted to say Ian Bremmer joins me today on The Big Interview. Ian Bremmer, great to have you with us. Thanks for coming to see us. Good to be um, back. And uh, nice to talk to you on The Big Interview. Let me just start by actually asking you about something I think you tweeted about or sort of made public last week. And this was a remark about the Nobel Peace Prize and potential recipients. And you suggested, I think, well, I don't know, an, an unlike, is it an unlikely selection of, of winners given recent events in and around the, the Korean Peninsula? Tell me a bit about that. Well, the South Korean president said it after I did. So, I mean, I'm glad he's following my tweets. It's, it's good. It's good. It's, it's an open forum. I said that I believe that if they uh, were able to get a peace deal done, not denuclearization, just a peace deal between South and North Korea, that I think that, uh, first of all, Trump deserves credit for it. And secondly, that uh, he and Xi Jinping and President Park and Kim Jong-un deserve the Nobel, the four of them. And the funny thing is that the response to that was overwhelmingly negative about Trump. Almost no one had a problem with the idea that the leader of the world's largest human concentration camp, Kim Jong-un, would be getting a Nobel. But my God, the idea that Trump could get one is just a bridge too far, which tells you something. This is what I find funny about Trump. Is this a case then of doing good politics almost inadvertently or because he follows his instincts, which we know are themselves unpredictable, changeable, that he's going to get some things right some of the time. And should we allow that to bother us if we look at something that ultimately maybe has a positive impact? Three components. One is he is unpredictable and likes that and thinks that that is a negotiating advantage. And it is a risk acceptance strategy. But it occasionally, especially since the United States is the biggest power out there, it leads to outcomes that can be more positive. So, for example, with South Korea, he pushed the South Koreans around and he got a better trade deal than, you know, Obama got with the South Koreans. So that occasionally can work. Second point is that the Trump administration is not just Trump. And Nikki Haley's been incredibly effective as ambassador to the United Nations. I speak with Antonio Gutierrez, the secretary general, a lot. And he has enormous amount of time for her, despite the fact they don't agree on every issue. Uh, thinks she's been very effective. And so do the other ambassadors. And she has been able to work hard in getting the Chinese on board for tougher, unanimous, U.S.-led multilateral sanctions at the United Nations Security Council against China. And I also thought that Trump was much more focused on the North Korea issue than previous administrations have. And some of that is because he thought that it was one that he could fix. 
but some of it is because he wanted to do history. No one had met with Kim Jong-un from day one. He's like, well, maybe I'll meet with Kim Jong-un. Like, he just saw he saw the opening. So, I mean, you can say it was inadvertent, but, you know, actually, it kind of was the strategy. And the thing is, so you look at Obama. When I look at the eight years of my writing and speaking about Obama and foreign policy, which is the area I focus on, I'd say I was probably 60-40 negative about Obama. When you look at the grand sweep, you look at Russia, you look at Syria, you look at Iran, you look at TPP, Asia Pivot, all of it together, probably 60, 40 negative. And everyone's fine with that. I would say on Trump, if you look at everything I have done and said on Trump in the last 15, 16 months, I've been 90, 10 negative on Trump foreign policy. And yet the 10% that I've been positive, there's been extraordinary blowback because people just can't handle you saying literally anything good about Donald Trump. And just on that point about U.S. foreign policy, a lot of people are saying that, you know, Trump could be doing, despite these successes, damage that could be irreparable from a United States point of view, soft power, hard power, however you quantify it. Do you think there's some truth to that? Or do we just have to accept that you have personalities, these things change, the personnel change, and it's cyclical perhaps, but not necessarily permanent. Most of the damage that has been done to U.S. soft and hard power in the world has been getting done over the past decades and is structural. The biggest piece was probably when the United States defeated the Soviets in the Cold War and we decided or even did not decide, because I don't think anyone was really thinking about it, not to build them up and integrate them in a U.S.-led system. No Marshall Plan. Basically tough. Russians, eh, we'll do NATO enlargement. You know, we'll make life good for those around you. But for you yourself, here's some shock therapy and go have a party. That was the beginning of the end of U.S. global leadership, in my view. And we could have done a, a much better job. And I can give you lots of other examples. Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, da-da-da-da, right? Trump comes in. It's already clear that the Chinese are playing a much bigger role than they used to. It's already clear that the Europeans are not really as aligned with us as they used to. You guys have already done Brexit at that point, but voted for Brexit. Certainly, you've not done Brexit. And then Trump comes in, and he's pushing on an open door. And he certainly has made the unwind of U.S. hard and soft power globally more extreme and precipitous than it had been under previous presidents. But it was moving in that direction very clearly. Uh, well, and to this point about unwinding, obviously you've written before in previous books about yes. the, I guess, the kind of vacuum in terms of global leadership. And I suppose the US remains really the only power presently that has both or could have the willingness and the resources to be a global leader. Where are we at in terms of that process? How all-consuming is it? Is there anyone who could break into it? Do you think we could see the domestic political will in a market like the US to retake some of that global leadership? Or is that a thing that's changed for the, that's changed. For the permanent? There will be a new, a new global order. The U.S. can choose to what degree we want to be involved in helping to shape that order and being a part of that order. But we cannot recreate Pax Americana. That is gone forever. If you ask where we are right now, it's different because the Chinese today are an economic superpower. The Chinese today are a technological superpower, but they are not a military or diplomatic superpower. And so it's very hybrid. Their willingness to try to play a big role in the world has grown immensely in the last 
15 months since Trump has been elected. That's been a very big deal. And Xi Jinping as president for life certainly is a part of that. One Belt, One Road is a really big part of that. But it's important to recognize that China's increasing leadership role globally is not a we, China, want to be in the position that America used to be in. We want to usurp them as the leader of all these global institutions. No, no, no. The Chinese wish to build their own competing architecture. That should be deeply worrying for those of us in the West that liked a liberal democratic model, Mm. especially because we're ripping our liberal democratic model apart kind of by the day right now. Well, we'll come on to that in a minute. But while we're talking about China and Xi in particular, you write again in the book, and this is something you've talked about before, the revival of the cult of personality, if you like, in Beijing, this sort of more Maoist tendency. Can you tell us a bit about your reading of why that's expedient for Xi Jinping to to follow that course now? I think for 25 years, a single thing that the West has believed and has really gotten wrong is that as China became wealthier and moved from a state-based fixed asset investment model to a consumer-driven economy, that they were going to need to politically reform as a system or they would fail. Going to have to become more like us, the US, the UK, the West. That's wrong. It's just wrong. And Xi Jinping really gets that, that uh, state capitalism and authoritarianism is something that they can double down on. And for the foreseeable future, it is a workable system. And indeed, the average person in China today believes in the Chinese dream, even though they did not have any opportunity to vote for or against Xi Jinping. While the average American does not believe, that the American dream applies to them or to their kids. And and that is a horrible thing to admit. I think that if you were to ask me today which political system is in greater need of structural reform, the United States or China, I would have to argue to you that it's a debate. And even five years ago, if I said that, you'd say I was Chomsky or something like that, right? And and it's horrifying to me to say that. I don't want to say that the Chinese system might actually prevail. I don't want to live in a world like that. But I have to recognize it. Xi Jinping does recognize it. And he is using his consolidation of power to build up the Communist Party, not reform it, and to build up the legitimacy of Chinese political authority, both at home and abroad. It's interesting, that idea of sort of recognizing reality, facing some tough truths, and that sort of permeates uh, your book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. One of the things that really strikes me is exactly something you picked up on a moment ago, is something rather sad about a lot of the progress that you chart or or progress or or regression to do with particular models, this sense that, you know, the American dream, it's not a given. It may not even exist. It may not even be possible anymore. Is is there a sort of a a balance of rather sorrowful accepting of facts and the lessons of recent history that has to go with a very objective analysis that you do? A number of times I was turning the pages, it was, I felt like it was documenting something that was lost. Am I, part, am I part of the problem, Ian? It's a very personal book for me, this. I mean, the book isn't about me, but in, in the opening of the book, I do talk about my background a little bit, just in the preface, because it's why I wrote the book. I mean, I grew up in the project, so public housing in the United States. And there were no capitalists where I grew up because no one had capital, 
right? Um, these are people that just wanted jobs and they just want opportunities for their kids. And I know that my, my mother passed a couple decades ago, but if, if she were around today, she would not have voted for Hillary or for Bush. She would have voted for any outsider. And if that meant Trump, it would have been Trump. My brother did vote for Trump in this last election. And it's not because my brother's a racist. It's because my brother believes that for decades, you have had members of the establishment that just have been lying to and not caring about the average American. Because the United States today is by far the wealthiest major economy in the world. You look, we are the world's largest producer of food. We are about to surpass the Saudis as the world's largest oil producer. We are the world's biggest technology superpower in so many areas, including AI, at least for now. These are big, big deals. And we also are enjoying peace within our borders, right? And yet, we have chosen to be unwilling and or incapable of taking that extraordinary wealth dividend and providing opportunities for people that are being left behind. And it's not just about economics. It's also about security. We have sent young men and women, not from the wealthy parts of society, but from the poorest. We've sent them to wars. Many of them have come back dead. Many of them have come back broken. We've not taken care of them. We've not treated them as heroes. We keep doing it with our allies, by the way, who are also not happy about this, right, their populations. We've allowed in large numbers of immigrants, which is certainly a policy that I've supported. But if you don't support the people that are at home first, there's going to be much more of a backlash. And there has been in the U.S. And now on top of all of this, we have technology, which is driving people apart. It's, uh, it's unraveling the fabric of liberal democracy. Technology is a wonderful thing in terms of economic growth. It is a horribly toxic thing in terms of liberal democracy, especially when it's unregulated. And you put all of those things together, and yeah, you're damn right we lost something. Remember, this book is not called The Failure of Globalization, because globalization, right, has brought enormous wealth to the world. It's the failure of globalism, which is not an economic process. It's a political ideology, an ideology that has been held by people like me and you at Monocle and others who have said, we're all one people, and if we open borders to goods and services and people moving around the world and ideas and we create global security and we build global technology that everyone will be better. And the fact is that globalists are much better off as a consequence of this and lots of other people in our own countries are not. And that is absolutely, it's not the potential of failure of globalism, it's failed. The ideology is bankrupt. And as someone who wants globalism to work, as someone who believes, that we are actually just one group of humans. We shouldn't be dehumanizing the other. I, I have to recognize this. So that I wrote this book for that reason. I wrote this book in part because it's not okay in this environment to pretend that it's fine. Ian, is it there? Is, is this then, or can it be, or do you hope that it's taken as a primer for fixing this problem? Because you return to this theme in the book democracies eroded, there's this feeling, particularly if we look at the UK and obviously in particular the United States with the election of Trump, this feeling the game is the game is rigged against me as a another member of the electorate. Can it be part of a primer to address that and to fix the process? Or is it about saying this hasn't worked? And there are echoes of the fact people said, oh, well, look, you know, communism isn't flawed fundamentally it's just always done wrong are we are we at that similar moment of reckoning when it comes to the political movement that is globalism so it's not actually something i believe is going to put us on the road to fixing it 
because we're not there yet. I wish we were. And I certainly talk in the conclusion about some of the things, some of the experiments that are being tried that could eventually be part of a solution. But no, no, no. It's much more problematic than that. Right now, key leaders in the West are not even willing to accept that this is a primary challenge. I mean, in the UK right now, you have a whole bunch of people. They're just fighting about Brexit all the time, right? And in the United States, you have people that are just fighting about Trump all the time. The idea is that the problem is not structural. It is Trump, right? And if you get rid of Trump, then it'll be okay. You know, it's after the 2008 financial crisis, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement, and then it was gone. And it's as if it never happened, right? And we didn't fix any of the problems. So, I mean, I hope that this book at least gets people in positions of power to start addressing the fact that the problem is not with the Trump supporters. The problem is not with the people that voted for Brexit or didn't bother to vote. The problem is not with the people that voted for AFD in Germany or Northern League and Five Star Movement in Italy. The problem and the complicity is with the political establishment, the business leaders, the public intellectuals, the media leaders, the bankers, who have allowed this to get to the point that large parts of our own population would come to the conclusion that either they want to check out because they're completely disenfranchised and nothing they do can make a difference, or that they want to vote for people that will break the system, right? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is increasingly likely, at least a coin flip, I think, to become prime minister of the UK. Now, we're not talking about Brexit here, right? We're talking about someone who is not a bad version of Tony Blair. We're talking about someone who is a good version of Trotsky, okay? I think that the idea that that could happen in the United Kingdom should be slapping you in the face really hard, and yet it doesn't seem to be, because every day it's just all about Brexit all the time, right? I mean, how can you say that this book is going to help people fix it when they're not willing to even identify the fact that the problem is the fact that you have this large number of people in the country that are prepared to do anything to say, I've had enough. I've had enough. In the United States right now, a sixth of young people are prepared to admit to a pollster, which means the number is probably a lot higher, that they would rather have military leadership in the U.S. than a democracy. And the only reason they would say that is because they think they don't live in a democracy. They think the system is rigged against them. And if we don't fix that, if we don't identify that as the problem, I am just not willing to stand up with everyone else and say Trump is the problem. I am mortified that I live in a country where in the most important election of my lifetime, more people didn't bother to vote than voted for either Trump or Hillary because they thought the options were so bad because they thought there was nothing that could be done that would matter for them. They'd given up. They gave up. Or they voted for Trump, who was by far the least capable person to run for office in my lifetime. You don't blame Trump for that. You don't blame the Trump voters for that. Jim Comey, right, he's been all over the media the last couple weeks. You know, uh, No Higher Loyalty, his book, former head of the FBI, fired by Donald Trump. And he comes out and he says, Donald Trump is morally unfit to be president. And he's making it very clear that we all knew that. So the people that voted for Trump are you know, all complicit and therefore something's wrong with them morally. And you know what? I think something's more wrong with Comey morally than them because Comey was in a position, has been in a position to actually do something. And frankly, so have I.
the fact that I have gone this long without writing this book is an indictment, right? I should have been writing about this as soon as Occupy was over and we didn't do a damn thing. I should have written this book. But when you get to the point that we see what's happening in all of our countries, there's only one advanced liberal democracy today that doesn't have this problem. There's only one, and it's Japan. And you know why? It's because in Japan, the population is shrinking so much that the working class, even though the economy is kind of stagnant, feels like they're doing a lot better. And in Japan, there's no immigration, so there's no one to hate. There's no us versus them, right? It's all Japanese. In Japan, they don't send the military all around the world to fight their poor people and the rest and come back broken because, you know what? They barely have a military, and they're constitutionally incapable of being a part of these coalitions. And technology doesn't really drive the Japanese apart because they're homogeneous as a people and because, again, the population is shrinking, so no one's getting displaced. The reason why Japan doesn't have a problem with globalism is because Japan has fundamentally rejected globalism a long time ago. That should tell us something deeply disturbing about our model. And you talk about greater inequality, and in the book you paint this picture of some fundamental problems that require real leaps of faith, massive systematic and systemic changes. I guess a reader of this book and a, a listener to your wise words could be forgiven for saying, Ian, this is pretty depressing. I don't feel great about the future, and I don't really know how to express that. I don't feel I can do it at the ballot box, as we've already talked about. I don't feel there's forums for doing it. Do we need to sometimes sort of take a step back, look at the bigger picture, and say, actually, there are a lot of profoundly positive things in the world. Is it a safer, happier time to be alive? Or do we risk, if we do do that, glossing over the nature of these problems in the way you've just described? Yeah, we do risk it. I am a product of the American dream to have accomplished what I've been able to accomplish because of my mother coming from nothing with no money and no contacts, no access to the network, is extraordinary. And I'm enormously appreciative of that. I'm a very optimistic person. We could spend an entire hour going through Steven Pinker and talking about all the wonderful things that we're living longer and, you know, sort of we have, uh, we're tailoring the genome so that we can have medicine that actually doesn't feel like the 18th century. I mean, all this kind of stuff's great stuff. But I'm a political scientist. And I will tell you that our political system, the one that we really believed was going to give the best opportunities for us for freedom of individual expression, for treating human beings as all the same, is broken. And we know it. When we look deep down, we know it. And we're not fixing it. And I think that if we allow ourselves to just focus on all the great stuff out there, we're going to lose some things that are essential about who we are. We want to live in a way. You know, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of American kids that went to grade school memorized the UN Charter. Fundamental Declaration of Human Rights was like essential because that was something we put together, the Americans leading globalism, one humanity. Can you imagine the backlash if you found out that a public school today in the United States was forcing, was forcing their children to memorize this globalist propaganda? That's a real problem. That so many things are going in the right direction right now, but the politics are not. And the history of our species tells you that when the politics go in the wrong direction, even if there's fantastic wealth and abundance, a lot of people can die. And a lot of people are going to be behind bars. And some of those bars will be real. Some of those bars will be virtual. The quote that I like the most in this book comes from William Gibson. 
the science fiction writer, who says that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I think when you look at Israel-Palestine and you see that Israel is by far the best government in not only the Middle East, but, I mean, one of the most effective in all of the planet, anti-corruption, free media, independent judiciary, great rule of law, as long as you're not Palestinian. And for decades, we had some of the smartest minds in the West saying that if Israel did not get a two-state solution in place, that that was going to be the end of Israel. And they were wrong because the Israelis have figured out how to wall off the Palestinians and give them no opportunities. And it's gotten so bad that the Palestinians are now throwing themselves at these walls in Gaza. Literally, they're doing it while I'm talking right now. And they're doing it despite the fact that the Israeli Defense Forces will shoot with lethal force if they try to breach the walls because they feel like there is no other way because they've been lied to by their own government and the Palestinian Authority, by the Israelis, by the Americans, by the Europeans, by the International Court of Justice, by the UN. They just feel like there's no hope. And I think that if that can happen there, if we don't address this, that will happen here. And that is not a dystopia because it's already here. Ian Bremer, I could speak to you about this all day, but perhaps just to pick up on, you mentioned this sort of your personal experience, the journey you've been on. Do you think that a youngster growing up in the States today, there's some extraordinary statistics in your book about the potential cost of certainly higher education in the US if it continues? I think it's a 6% year-on-year increase could see a, a private sort of undergraduate degree running at half a million dollars by, well, within 10 years or so. That feels like that's going to make that ever more prohibitive, of course, for ever more people. Could a youngster born in Massachusetts, as you were, describe the path that you yourself have have walked? Or do you think that's almost becoming an impossibility? And does that speak to this erosion, not just of American, you know, liberal democratic values, but of that, of the American dream? I mean, San Francisco, just in the past couple of months, has put together a plan to uh, give community college education for free to anyone that lives in SF. Uh, That was since I've written the book, so it's not in there. But that's a big deal. That's a big city. And I think there are other places that will do similar sorts of things. And, you know, the Gates Foundation announced sort of a huge amount of money for underprivileged kids to get scholarships and the rest. But these are all targeted. If you ask me about the United States as a whole and the average American kid growing up, even the projects I grew up in, the vast majority of those kids, some very bright kids, but the institutions were broken. And if it was, look, if it wasn't for my mom, no way. No way, despite everything. And as much as we want to say that the United States is about you built it and you pull yourself up in your bootstraps and we have a country that supports entrepreneurship and we do, it's really easy to start your own company, but you have to get to the point where you could think about that. You have to get to the point where you've got a mentor or two or three. You have to get a point where you can believe that you're going to have the tools that will allow you to do something better. Ian Bremer, fantastic to speak with you. Thanks very much for coming to see us here at Monocle. (laughs) 
The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffan and edited by Cassie Galpin and George McDonough. I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for tuning in to this edition, which is the last in the current season. If you feel you're going to miss out on the show, do delve back into the archive of past editions at the website, iTunes, or on your preferred podcast platform. And be sure to watch this space. Keep an eye on monocle.com for the announcement of the next season of the programme. It'll be back in the autumn of 2018. I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.